This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to Inside the Vatican with America Media. I'm your host, Colleen Deli. The Synod on Synodality has concluded, and we are left with the question of what is to come in the next 11 months and then next year's assembly. And what came out of this one? I sat down with Dr. Catherine Clifford at the end of the Synod, before the final document came out, to talk about her experience as a voting member of the Synod and what she expects to happen next. Kathy is a professor of systematic and historical theology at St. Paul's University in Ottawa, Canada. Her research and publications are focused primarily on ecclesiology, ecumenism, and the history of the Second Vatican Council. So stick around for our conversation. But first, we wanted to recap some significant developments in the case against Father Marco Rupnik. That's the former Jesuit and artist who was dismissed from the order for refusing to comply with his superior's restrictions on his ministry after he was credibly accused of sexual abuse. News broke in Italian and German outlets on October 25th that Rupnik, who remains a priest, had been transferred into the Diocese of Koper in his home country of Slovenia. This happened at his own request, and he was accepted by the bishop there, according to those reports. The announcement provoked outcry from those who believed that Rupnik should not be allowed to continue ministering as a priest. Two days later, the Holy See, responding to a request from the Pope, announced that it would lift the statute of limitations on the Rupnik case. That is, it would do away with the legal time restriction for reporting cases of abuse and allow for a church trial to take place. The Jesuits had already conducted an internal inquiry that deemed the allegations that 25 women brought against Rupnik as highly credible. But another investigation by the Diocese of Rome into Centroaletti, which is the center for artists and theologians run by Rupnik in Rome, denied finding any problems there. And that investigation cast doubt on the Vatican's decision to excommunicate Rupnik in 2020. These conflicting investigations have called into question where Pope Francis stands on Rupnik, what knowledge he had about previous allegations, and what role, if any, he's played in the decisions by both his religious order and in his diocese as the Bishop of Rome. This Monday, October 30th, five of Rupnik's alleged victims, former members of the Loyola community in Slovenia, came forward, shedding their anonymity, to express their surprise at the Vatican's decision to lift the statute of limitations, and saying that they hope this step will finally reveal the truth of what happened. We'll keep following this story as it develops here on Inside the Vatican. And now, on to my conversation with Dr. Catherine Clifford, a voting member of the Synod on Synodality that just ended its first session at the Vatican. Kathy, welcome to Inside the Vatican. Thanks, Colleen. It's good to be with you. I appreciate you finding some time in your grueling schedule. We've all heard about how long and hard these days of the Synod have been. At the end of this month-long journey, how are you feeling? What's the mood among your fellow Synod participants inside the hall? I think there's a bit of fatigue, no doubt. But there's also, I think, a lot of gratitude and 
The experience of the Synod has certainly brought us together as a kind of community. We spent a lot of time listening to one another's lived experience and to the experiences of local churches in a broad, I mean, a very complex diversity of contexts. So I come away with a better understanding, not certainly not an exhaustive one, of the complexity and the diversity of the global Catholic community and the many challenges facing Christians in all kinds of different contexts. Of course, we're all preoccupied by what's going on in the world today, the outbreak of war, forced migrations of peoples, the climate crisis. And it's within this context that we're also looking at the challenges facing the church, both internally, but also in, in the, the ways that we're being called to better serve the world and humanity. The heart of this synod meeting was the small group discussions, and each one dealt with a particular question from the working document, the Instrumentum Laboris. Are you leaving the synod as a, a convert or a believer in this methodology, and why? I think there's a lot of gratitude for the experience. It would be difficult to take part in anything this intensive and not be changed by it. So the process itself is, in a sense, a bit of a laboratory to help us all learn to listen. One of the things that emerged from the global consultation process that preceded the General Assembly here was we don't know how to listen very well to each other. We don't know how to listen carefully, deeply, and allow ourselves to be changed by what we hear. And the process was a kind of the process and practice of spiritual conversation where we alternate between listening to each person around the table. No one has more time than, than anyone else. There's no interrupting. There's no reacting. There's no judgment. And surfacing the lived reality and experience from our different contexts. And then taking moments of prayer and silence to let this descend and to listen more deeply. I just think that the process itself has been a learning process, and we want to bring this experience back to the local churches. It's been a big cultural change for the bishops in the room, at least some of them. There's been some concern raised about you know, the fact that this is not a synod of bishops because there are lay people involved. I wanted to ask you about this because you're an ecclesiologist. I wanted to get your perspective on what you would say to those bishops who are concerned that this methodology of giving everyone equal weight, equal time has kind of supplanted the nature, the authority of, of the synod of bishops. I actually don't think this takes away anything from the authority of the bishops. In fact, if it's done rightly, it should strengthen the authority of the bishops. Tell me what you mean by that. For me, there's kind of echoes of the anxiety that surrounded debates at the Second Vatican Council when the Council Fathers wanted to introduce the idea and the acknowledgement that the bishops belong to a college and that they are, together with the Bishop of Rome, members of the same college, the heads of local churches who also share in the care and governance of the global Catholic Church together with the Bishop of Rome. There are many people who feared that this would take away from the authority of the Bishop of Rome. And in fact, I think the opposite is true, that when they act together in concert, the witness of the church and its teaching can be much stronger and richer. 
So bishops have authority, or they're given power that belongs to their office to lead and to exercise jurisdiction and to make decisions. None of that is being attacked here or diminished. In fact, the synod has just broadened out with a, a number of representatives of other uh, presbyters. There are one or two deacons and, and a number of lay and religious women and men. And the synod itself, this is not an ecumenical council. It's a consultative body. We're not taking away from the decision-making authority that still belongs to the bishops, but the decisions that they make will have greater authority when the people have been heard and properly consulted. So it, 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 it's really introducing a more transparent form of church governance. What do you mean when you say their decisions will have greater authority after listening? Like I can see them having greater credibility among people, but uh, why authority? Well, I, I think we need to distinguish between power and authority. You can have power and exercise it and have absolutely no authority or, or not be respected by a community or, or people won't be willing to receive the decisions if they haven't been brought on board along the way. So I, I actually think that when people have been part of the discerning and decision-making process, that they will recognize the decision as the fruit of a consensus within the community, and it will have more weight and more authority than if the bishop made a decision in isolation from the people. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So. On October 25th, we reporters were given a copy of the Pope's intervention that he made without any context. We weren't given any context. Just It was given by the Holy See Press Conference. It was clear from the text that the Pope was really passionate about upholding like the faith and the courage of all of the faithful, the people of God, especially women, in the face of what he called institutionalized clericalism, which he said enslaves the holy people of God. He talked about this idea from the Second Vatican Council of the people of God being infallible in belief. And I've been getting some questions from our listeners about that. I was hoping maybe you could explain that to us in, a, in an easy to understand way. Sure. Well, it's, it's another idea that was revived or recovered in the teaching of Vatican II, especially in its constitution on the church. When we say that the baptized participate in the three offices of Christ, who is priest or prophet, and king, the prophetic office is the call to receive and witness to and proclaim the word of God. And St. Augustine talked about the fact that all the baptized faithful, from the bishop down to the last of the faithful, he says, cannot err in their belief because they've been given through the anointing of the Holy Spirit in baptism an innate capacity to recognize and discern the truth of the gospel. They don't have to be able to expound it in complex theological terms, but they recognize the truth at the core of our faith in the fact that our salvation comes from Christ, that God is a loving God who desires for all of us to be saved and to be made whole and healed and for us to live together as one in the world. So why do bishops need to listen to the baptized? Because they have this capacity for discernment. And, and, and when you want to know what the faith of the church is and what the bishops and the pope teach is not their ideas and their opinions, but it's the faith of the whole church, then you have to listen to the whole church. 
and trust in their capacity for discernment. And the synodal process is a way of doing that. Absolutely. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back. In many of the press briefings during this month, journalists have asked about particular issues of concern that were raised around the world and were articulated in the working document, in particular the inclusion of LGBT people in the church, the possibility of blessing same-sex relationships, the ordination of women to the diaconate, even to the priesthood. And all the synod members who responded to these questions said that the synod is not about tackling particular issues, but about becoming a synodal church. Sometimes it came off as dismissive of those issues, saying like only the media cares about them or that they're only relevant to the church in North America, where we come from. As a synod member from North America, what's your sense of how the synod publicly framed those issues? To what degree were you actually talking about these things? All of those issues were raised and all of them are discussed. Um, I don't think there's a consensus on any single one of those issues. <laughs> yeah. Um, and But it's important that we know that there are issues of great concern to large numbers of people in the church. The questions are open questions. We see sometimes the tensions and the lines of diversity are drawn on cultural lines. We're no different than any other Christian world communion in that regard. But I would say especially the women's question, and not all women are asking to be ordained, but, but there are issues of the just treatment of women in the church, the issues of women who are, uh, are being abused uh, sexually or economically, you know, being asked to work on a volunteer basis or without a just salary. There's a host of issues that were surfaced in every continent among the priority issues was the need for greater respect, recognition, and integration of women's participation and women's gifts at every level of the church. So the question, especially of women's diaconal ministry, is on the table. I don't think we fully restored the permanent office of deacon in the church in the last 60 years. We've made some experiments, especially in, in the West, in North America and in Europe, but in other continents, there are very few married deacons. Um, the question of married clergy is also a live question. And, you know, the Eastern Catholics are sharing with us their 2,000-year-old tradition of having very capable, reliable married men in ministry and serving communities. So these are conversations that have opened. They're not easy conversations, but it's important that they, they're not being shut down prematurely, if I could say. And I, I think it's a more honest situation to say, these are live questions, there's a variety of perspectives, and maybe the solutions to these questions 
will not be universal. Which sounds similar to what we heard out of the Amazon Synod with the question of ordaining mature married men, right? It was one of the things that came out was, you know, maybe this is something to be done in Latin America where the need is greater, but not elsewhere. Do you think that we'll have some concrete decisions on these controversial things? I guess taking the women's question, like ordaining women to the diaconate, to the priesthood, whatever. I would say there's been very open and frank conversation about these questions. You will see them mentioned in the final uh, synthesis document. But I don't think this is the forum to make those decisions. The, the goal of this synodal process is to ask ourselves, how do we become a more synodal church? Clearly, that requires a much more serious integration of women at every level of church life, a better recognition of their gifts, and the question comes up, um, and many some bishops are asking this question, I have women who are carrying out these ministerial functions. Why can we not restore the office of women's diaconal ministries and allow us to ordain women to this ministry? And there are also Eastern Catholic bishops who say, well, look, we still have, we always have had women in diaconal ministry in our communities. These are not the central questions on the agenda. The driving force or the, the main recommendations emerging from the Synod will be about how we can address these issues going forward. We've been told that these issues will maybe be addressed more concretely after everyone learns how to discuss things synodally. This first meeting has been framed as sort of a synodal boot camp. Do you think that people are better able now to answer those questions than they were on October 1st? Will they be more prepared or equipped to answer those questions 11 months from now? I, I'm not sure. Some people's positions are very entrenched. Um, and I think I'm not sure that the methodology that we've been using is one that allows us to go behind divergences and identify common ground. That's that's a, that's another step. But you know, we've surfaced our divergent positions, and I do think that the way forward on these questions, if it takes a truly synodal form, will be much more important in building consensus than in having you know a small committee of men and Roman callers decide these things in a Roman office behind a closed door. And I think the driving force has to be the request of the bishops. They're looking at the situation and the needs for ministers in their local churches. And they're saying, you know, look, we have this group of people here that we, we would like to ordain for service in the church, or we'd like to have more permanent forms, even of lay ecclesial ministers that need to be better integrated in a stable way into the local church. So there's, there's a, I think, an openness to more creativity and more local initiative. That approach would have more chance in succeeding than looking for universal solutions. May I ask you one more question on this? There's been sort of a dichotomy in the framing of this nodal process in, in the press conferences each day between the controversial issues, right, the hot button issues, mm -hmm. and this journey towards becoming a more synodal church. I have a feeling that becoming a more synodal church is also somewhat controversial. Is that something that you sense as well? Well, you, you've raised yourself the point of 
concern raised by many more conservative um, movements in the church that this is somehow undermining the authority of the pope or the or the bishops, the the synod itself, uh, as as an episcopal body. But I'm I'm quite convinced that any bishop who goes home and tries to put this into practice in a serious way will see his own authority enhanced and will discover a whole lot of untapped vital energies and gifts just waiting to be invited to, to come forward um, in their local church. And I, I, to me, that there's, that's a win-win proposition. I just don't see the downside of it. Yeah, that's very similar to what Timothy Radcliffe said in the um, Synod Presser. He said, the Synod is far more expressive of what it means to be a bishop than anyone I've ever been to before. You've mentioned this question of formation a few times, and I know that it's come up a lot in the synod discussions. Formation of, you know, young priests, of bishops, and also of lay people and how to be a more synodal church. I'm curious what you think is important in terms of formation for new candidates for the priesthood. I know that there's been all this discussion of of clericalism and how we need to move past that, and that's left some clergy feeling like they don't really know what their role is to be in a simple church. I just wanted to get your thoughts on this as as an expert in ecclesiology. What do you think needs to happen in that formation? I would suggest three things. First is the whole model of seminary formation. It's still rooted in the 16th century, and it takes a mod- monastic paradigm to form men who will be secular priests living in urban centers, and, and we want them to be collaborating with lay people. So that we send them away for six years of isolation and expect them to come back and, and work collaboratively with, with laymen and, and very competent women who've been trained in other centers sometimes. So we also have separated, in, in, not in every context, but in many contexts, seminary education and other forms of theological and pastoral formation for people, lay people who will be assuming pastoral and administrative roles in the church. So first of all, these people need to get together they need to experience their f- formative years together, and they also need to learn the people skills necessary to be collaborative leaders. So those are two things in terms of formation and discernment for ministry. The other issue I think has to do with this theological issue. This has been raised in a number of reports on the crisis of sexual abuse, um, especially in France, um, in, in Australia, you could go back to the John Jay report in the United States from 2004 after the Dallas Charter. It is regularly observed that there's a certain false sacralization of the priest that is supported by what I consider to be an unbalanced theology of priesthood that focuses more on the role of the priest in his sacramental role, but but doesn't have a strong sense of the priest's call to serve a community. The theology of priesthood that we see in the scriptures and in the early Christian church focused first on Christ and Christ's priesthood. Christ is our only high priest. And then on the priestly people of God and the ordained ministers in the church, presbyters and deacons, presbyters and and bishops especially, are called to be at the service of the unfolding of the baptismal priesthood in the world. That kind of corrective is very, very needed 
And again, when Francis consulted the bishops about priorities for discussion at future synods, they said, we need to talk about synodality, but we would also like to talk about priesthood. So I think that going forward, there's a recognition of, of a need for some renewal in this regard as well. So as we're nearing the end of the synod, what would you say to people who may have had more expectations for concrete you know, outcomes from this and decisions on those big questions. I know this final document, it's about to come out as we're recording. It will be out by the time our listeners uh, are hearing this, but it's going to outline the convergences, the divergences, the questions and the proposals or ideas around all the topics that you've discussed, which means not a lot of concrete decisions. And so I'm curious what you would say to someone who had been hoping for more concrete outcomes from this meeting? How should they keep hope in the Synod? Well, stay tuned, because hopefully when when these bishops go home and they talk to their brothers in the Episcopal conferences and they talk to their clergy, we will begin to see a stronger commitment to this listening culture, this synodal culture. And if you consider that since the Second Vatican Council, more than two-thirds of the dioceses in the world have not had a synod, that many, many dioceses in the world do not have a diocesan pastoral council, or many parishes don't have pastoral councils, people are asking now, don't these need to be required structures? Can't we broaden out some of the other provisions for provincial councils, or could a national conference of bishops organize a plenary council where there's also a, a lot of the possibility of integrating participation from lay people. I think the first thing we should expect to see is a whole lot of work and reflection about structures and practices of church governance. So that's important. Remember how shocked people were, first of all, to be invited to share their perspectives and then to be heard that in itself is, is quite an indictment of how far we have to go. <laughs> that needs to be a regular experience. This is not a one-off. And if that begins to happen, then we have the space and the processes to face these other issues. Is there anything else that you think needs to happen over the next 11 months? There's still a lot of skeptics around and people who are concerned that this is somehow some kind of revolutionary upsetting of traditions and practices. But you could find this, the whole agenda, all the things that we're looking at here, you could see, go back and read The Joy of the Gospel from 2013 in, in, in Pope Francis' post-apostolic exhortation for the new evangelization. And he said, here's the program for my pontificate, and this is not my idea. I'm sharing with you the mandate I received from the men in the College of Cardinals who elected me. This is not uh, uh, just one man's agenda. There are leading bishops around the world who are uh, deeply desirous of seeing this change in culture and of reviving structures and practices for church governance so that we become a much more participatory church where there's much more of a culture of co-responsibility. Those kinds of changes don't happen overnight, so I would invite people also to be patient, but to be frank, and to speak to their leaders, speak to their pastors, speak to their bishops. That seems like a great place for us to end. So, Kathy Clifford, thank you so very much for joining us here on Inside the Vatican. We really appreciate you taking the time. It's great to be with you. 
And in case you missed it, my colleagues Zach Davis, Gerard O'Connell, Father James Martin, and our editor-in-chief, Father Sam Sawyer, had a discussion analyzing the Synod's final document just after it came out earlier this week. You'll find that in your Inside the Vatican podcast feed, and I'll link to it and all of our other Synod wrap-up content in our show notes. Inside the Vatican is a production of America Media. This episode was produced by Ricardo De Silva. Production assistance from Zach Davis. Kevin Christopher Robles is our audio engineer. Our executive producer is Sebastian Gomes. To keep up with the latest news out of the Vatican, please follow us on X at INSDE Vatican Pod. That's inside without the second I, Vatican Pod. You can also follow me on Instagram or X at Colleen Dully, that's C-O-L-L-E-E-N-D-U-L-L-E. And you can follow our veteran Vatican correspondent Gerard O'Connell on X at Jerry O. Rome. That's G-E-R-R-Y-O-R-O-M-E. Please also consider becoming a digital subscriber to America Media. Just click on the link in our show notes. It's easy to do, and it's the best way to support our work here on Inside the Vatican. And if you have a little time to spare, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. For America Media, I'm your host and producer, Colleen Dully. We'll see you next time. Thank you.